We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Men from Moto. Digital strategies with Travis Sowers and David Seville. Intellect, vast, cool, and unsympathetic. Broadcast to the world with the uncanny help of Mana Deprived and FaceToFaceGames.com. Greetings, people of Earth. We're the men from Moto, and you're listening to episode 69. Fire it off. My name is David Sville, and I have Travis Sowers on the line with me this week. How are you, sir? I'm handsome. How are you, David? I am getting old. My legs are killing me. My hamstrings are tight. I started playing sports this week, and it's uh, it was a painful first night out. So I'm limping like an old man today. As an old man, I can confirm that getting old is worse than being old, because what's happening to you right now is you wake up and everything hurts and you're surprised, whereas I'm just kind of used to it. It's just uh, it's just old hat for you these days. Yeah, it's just how it's just how life is these days. I'm yeah. not old. I'm a veteran gamer. That is that is fair. Um, I'm I'm not ashamed to admit that I got destroyed by kids 15 years younger than me last night. But it was a lot of fun. I just need to, I don't know, find a workout routine. Maybe <laughs> I'm not sure. Do you know what is a great workout routine though for my brain? Magic the Playing. Gathering. Playing magic. That's right. No no Alzheimer's up in this house. Uh, speaking of magic, how was your week this week in magic? It was really good. Uh, I, I did... Actually, I, I recorded it. Somebody asked me to record it. So they had the Dominaria drafts up on Arena. I did 10 of them. Uh, we had seven wins in six of them. So the, the decks that overperformed for me, kind of a lot of them had red in it. Uh, if not red, black or white. Whereas, like, blue for me, not so hot unless I paired it with one of those colors. It was kind of surprising. But I'd say overall I did really well. I enjoyed drafting a lot in that client. I think I'm going to go back and draft some Dominaria on Magic Online because I want to get ready for the the GP coming up. Uh, But I've really been enjoying Arena. Also built uh, blue-white winless control where your kind of goal is just to ultimate Teferi and then watch them cry. Uh, And that's great fun unless your opponent actually makes you play it out. In which case, you just feel like a, a terrible jerk. Somebody probably loves that feeling, but it, it wasn't for me. I was still playing mono red, still playing green. I'm enjoying playing constructed there. I'm kind of getting ready for like draft to be a normal thing in arena, or for us to have a best of three format. Because like some of the, the the matchups, you're like, man, I could wreck you with a sideboard, but you just can't because you don't have one. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing how the sideboarding uh, plays out in the style of competitive ladders that we have now um specifically because i think there's a lot of people maybe that are newer to magic or don't play a lot of magic um in the best of threes at your friday night magics or whatever that might just get wrecked by sideboarding period like either not knowing how to sideboard or over sideboarding or not building their sideboard correctly um so there's potential space for for people that know how to use the sideboard to earn some wins quite easily there and i think it'll be very skill testing i think for for a lot of people so i look forward to that yeah and we should probably do an episode about sideboarding one day in the not too distant future or, or at least a short section on it i can remember <laughs> this is very old but it was on one of kyt's podcasts and he's talking to somebody about you know the sideboard that they've made and they're identifying what the cards are for and then he gets to like 
a four of that just kind of doesn't make sense. And he's like, okay, okay, what are these doing in the sideboard? And the guy's like, those are for backup. <laughs> and I was like, you, you kind of don't know what to do with your sideboard, buddy there, do you? That's not, you don't have backup in your sideboard. It's not the how sideboard, that works. The sideboard is your backup. You don't yeah. have backup to the backup. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people when they sideboard that they just pull a, a 75 card list off of some top eight site or something like that. And you look at the sideboard and you think you get it right. It's like, I got four, four duresses in here. I bring that in against control, but like, you know, the 11 other cards you might not know without experience. So I think if you're new to a deck or, you know, or you pulled it from somewhere and you're not really sure, like the 60, you know, that's fine. You play with that all the time, but that extra 15 is where you can earn some, some extra percentage points which is one of the reasons why i like the best of three so we should certainly do a topic on that if not constructed for limited for sure um even though that's a you know you only get a handful of cards in your sideboard but um i I think we could talk about that quite a bit so i look forward to that yeah um what else so in in arena this week um no big news or anything like that except we did have dominaria drafting on the weekend which is a ton of fun um and then we've got rivals of ixalan drafts coming up this weekend so it's funny. I think we've done a complete 180 on this and that you are excited to draft it and I am not interested in drafting it at all. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Like, I like the interface on Arena so much that I'm willing to go draft one of the worst limited formats in, in modern history. Um, and, like, that's that's taken a giant dump on Ixalan, which I don't know that it necessarily deserves. I think the format was fun for 15-ish drafts. For, for me, the problem wasn't necessarily the gameplay. The gameplay was fine. It was that five picks in, I know what I'm picking for the rest of the draft. It reminded me a lot of like Modern Masters. But like oddly enough, I think that's going to be really good when you're drafting against spots. Like Just figure out what's open, you'll get an insane deck, and then go play some games with it. Like I can yeah. be excited about being able to play that on Arena. Yeah, you can probably get excited about playing the Nut Merfolk deck over and over and over again. It'll just be just like Constructed. Yeah. Um... Can we just quickly talk about how night and day Dominaria drafting is compared to Rivals of Ixalan drafting? Like, you talk about not being on rails at all. I have seen a ridiculous number of archetypes in Dominaria drafting, on both on Magic Online and on Magic Arena. I've seen Mill decks succeed. I've seen, like, janky Wincon decks succeed. I've seen aggro decks succeed. Midrange, I mean, not really control you know i've seen bomb rares win i've seen just the stone nut uncommon deck win i've seen five color legends no fixing win like that that's a that's an actual thing that's not a thing that is a thing i've seen it happen it happened to me and it felt it was painful and i had to applaud the guy it was great i mean i'm sure he had fixing in his deck somewhere but it was it was five color legends and it was amazing um there's a lot of different strategies and Never once have I felt railroaded by like, well, you know, I I got past a Merfolk Lord. I better play blue green Merfolk. Um, it's been very very refreshing compared to the the past two formats, and I'm I'm quite quite pleased with it so far. Agree, and like I feel like there's d- interesting decisions at a lot of points throughout the draft and deck construction. I have already played multiple sixteen land decks and multiple eighteen land decks. I've played decks that were five color. I've used Navigator's Compass. I've played two monocolor decks, which I didn't really think was a thing in draft, but you'd do enough of them, you're going to see it some. I had a mono green deck and a mono blue deck. Yeah. They were both quite I've, good. I've had interesting decisions where, like, 
do I take this piece of re very good removal versus a creature card that would go great in my deck? Like, do I take a a slime or a fungus lord, or do I take eviscerate, or do I take you know slimefoot versus eviscerate? It seems to come down to slimefoot versus eviscerate. It happens too frequently for my enjoyment, um, and I've been making the wrong decisions quite a bit, and and it's. It's it sucks to lose and it sucks to make those decisions those poor decisions sometimes, um, but it's it's enjoyable to learn the format and learn the process and I feel like I'm becoming a better drafter as a result of it. It's enjoyable too, like to open the third pack and feel like you could do anything instead of open the third pack and be like, okay, we're gonna look for the vampire card in this pack because you know yeah. we're deep in vampires that's what we're doing. So I I I think that just speaks to me not liking tribal sets so much. Um it's kind of odd that I enjoyed Ravnica as much as I did considering it was kind of on those rails too where it was kind of instead of there's 10 decks there's only 5 decks. I think that was the wombo combo of the the restrictions there didn't bother me as much because I enjoyed the setting and the story so much whereas Ixalan was kind of a whiff on both for me. I've mentioned this before, but Kaladesh was a whiff on the story. I still don't really understand what was going on there and just wasn't interested enough to care. But the gameplay was great. So, like, it, it didn't matter. Short of Renegade Freighter, which I think probably was a little too pushed. But, like, other than that, that set was pretty darn good for Limited. Like, right up until the end, I was drafting it and happy with it. So I, I think it was just a convergence of things that made Ixalan kind of... But uh, mm -hmm. all of that said, I'm actually looking forward to drafting it this weekend. All right. Well, I will look forward to watching you uh, and not drafting it myself. So <laughs> I will I will draft vicariously through you. Um, on Magic Online this week, uh, we've got a couple of announcements. One is Lorwyn Flashback Drafts are out this week, which is kind of sweet, um, except for the fact that I've never drafted it. I don't think you've ever drafted it. I did once. Um, I think it was Walking Sponge in chat that dared me to, and I tried it. And I had no idea what I was doing. I've seen a lot of people that really enjoy this. Josh used to go nuts when they would do uh, Josh Frankel, Soul Bush one. For for you old school listeners, uh, one of the original co-hosts of the show. But he used to go nuts for that particular set and, and some all the ones in that block. And it was really fun to watch somebody who knew what they were doing draft it. I didn't. I took a break from Magic from around Prophecy till about Scars of Mirrodin. So anything in between there I'm a little cloudy on. And I haven't found the flashbacks great to jump in unless you've got somebody to kind of guide you and tell you what to do. So this one, not so much for me, but I do think it's awesome that flashbacks are continuing to be offered. Uh, I just hopefully they'll get to a set that I'm excited about soon. Because it was really nice yeah. to do Theros again, and I imagine somebody's like, heck yeah, Lorwyn, go have some fun, man. For sure. And, um, you know, in order for them to build something or do something like this doesn't mean they have to tear anything else down, which is great. So um, they're just kind of sticking it out there for people to do if they've if they enjoy the format and it looks like the prize or sorry, the, the entry fee and the prizes are the same as any other phantom draft. So 10 tickets to enter and the, you get a hundred tickets back or a hundred play points back for, for two and one. So pretty reasonable prize structure. Um, just like most of the phantom formats that we do Theros aside, because Theros was excellent value. Can you enter with packs like you could with Theros? I didn't see that. Um, I don't know if there's actually Lorwyn packs floating around. Um, so okay. I guess we'll have to go check that and um, check out MTG Lee's or uh, Lee Sharp's Twitter. He'll have the information on that. Um, and then what else we got for an announcement is um, they announced a, a cube and a Magic Online Cube Spotlight series, they're calling it, um, which is once 
between sets, between set releases, they're going to do um, a different cube than what they normally do. So no modern cube, uh, vintage cube, legacy cube, uh, legends cube, I guess, was probably the first one that they kind of did that was similar to this um, or, or close to this. And their first one that they're doing is an uncommon cube, which seems kind of cool to me. Um, you know, not quite popper. And there's a lot of powerful uncommon card cards lately and a lot of neat build around common cards. So we don't have a, a card list of that yet that will come soon. And I don't think they've announced the date on this either, but it is coming soon. So I look forward to seeing what the cube is like. And who knows, you know, maybe I'll draft it. Maybe I'll be playing Arena at the time. But um, if you like cube, you'll probably be interested in at least taking a look at this list and seeing what it's all about. Yeah, I found myself pulled more and more towards Arena lately. I just enjoy the interface. And then uh, putting something on the line, but not everything on the line, feels feels like a good way to play. That said, cube is probably enough to draw me out of my arena hole for a little bit because I'm I'm gonna have to try a new cube. I'd like I'm just gonna have to try a new cube. Mm, at least once. Yeah, at least once. All right, shall we get into our main topic? Yes, let us do that before we get too distracted and have an hour long <laughs> podcast and never got to it. An hour long podcast about nothing in particular. Yeah. Um, so this week we wanted to talk about um, using your removal. And this was kind of spurred by a, me drafting Dominaria and coming into coming into a couple situations. This is earlier in the format when I kind of said, you know, I felt like it was a haymaker format. There's a lot of must answer cards um, and there's a lot of, you know, bomb uncommons or very powerful uncommons that, that are tough to beat if they can get suited up with equipment or, or whatever. Um, and I ran into a couple of situations where it was like, you know, do I fire this removal spell off at this particular point in the game or do I hold it like going through all the decision points? And I thought it was, a, you know, all of the, the things that I was thinking about are things that are natural to me and they're natural to some magic players. I imagine or probably most magic players is the series of questions you go through and you ask yourself, should I use this removal spell? Um, but I don't think anybody, or I don't think the average player stops and thinks about this. Um, and a lot of these decisions that they're making are just reflection decision or reflexive, sorry, reflex decisions um, where, you know, it's a gut decision or, or they've done it before. They've seen this scenario before and they just kind of fire it off and they use the removal spell right or wrong. And, you know, I, I don't think in a lot of these scenarios that we're going to talk about, there's no right or wrong answer necessarily in, in all of them, but there's a, a spectrum of answers, right? There's some that are, you know, higher percentage plays than others. And, and there's some that, you know, are easy decisions to make. And there's some that are just easy decisions to not make or, or to say no to. Um, and I think we're going to kind of walk through all of the things that we think about when we go through using our removal spells. And we'll have a couple of scenarios of actual in-game scenarios that we can talk about the decision points uh, and the evaluation you go through when you're going to use your removal spell. So buckle in and uh, we're going to kind of fire this off. We're going to dump some, hopefully some knowledge on you, but it's going to be a lot of just I think free flow discussion and brainstorming about the the different types of decisions that we make when we're using our removal spells. Yeah, I would say rather than looking at us to necessarily answer when you should you should use a removal spell, what I'm hoping to accomplish by this is to get you thinking about when you should use a removal spell so that you engage that brain and have that that thought process rather than just, you know, firing it off. Exactly. So Travis, when you are playing a game of magic, and you come to a decision point. It doesn't matter what that decision point is, but let's, you know, for, for this sake, when to use a removal spell. What are some of the, the easiest things that you can evaluate as a player that you evaluate all of the time? Like it's always ongoing. 
so you have your board state, right? Mm -hmm. What creatures are on the board? What mana is on the board? You know, how many cards are in my opponent's hand? How many cards are in my hand? Um, what other things on top of that do you, at the, at the very surface, analyze when it comes to a game of Magic? I mean, included in the board state, but very important uh, in particular to when to use removal is what are the life totals at? Mm-hmm. Like, and so, are we both at 20? Are you at one and I'm at 20? Is that reversed? Are we somewhere in between? So like, that's that's going to change my evaluation of when to use a removal spell. Um, and then another big one is like, you mentioned how many cards do I have in hand, but what are they? How do they interact? Do I have a bunch of zero five defenders? Do I have a bunch of two, two for five unblockables? Like, you know, depends on the format, of course, but like, what are the cards in my hand wanting to do? Are they wanting me to like close the game quickly? Or are they wanting me to stall for time so that I can resolve this seven drop that's just going to win? Uh, so I, I think that's certainly an aspect of it too. One of the questions I like to look at when I'm evaluating a game, a game state is how do I win or how do I lose? Yeah. Um, and I think this, this is a question that you're always asking yourself, not just when you're evaluating when to use removal, but um, how do I win from this board state? How do I win from this position? You know, do I use my removal spell aggressively? Do I use it defensively? Um, do I not use it at all? Am I winning the game as it is? Right? Do I can I hold this? Can I make those decisions? So I also look at that as what is my path to victory, or if I'm well ahead, what is my path to losing? Um, and I try to evaluate kind of those different scenarios from the current point in time. I think I think that's a key one to look at too. For sure. And then I also think like you can be in a board stall, but I think it's worth looking like at a board and, and either saying like what happens if this board just never changes who's advantaged like does my opponent have a slight advantage maybe we're relatively stalled but they're still able to poke for one a turn with a flyer you know or maybe i've got a two three and they've got a pair of one threes and they're able to sneak in a point of damage every turn and my life total is a little bit lower so i don't necessarily want to make that trade like who's advantage because it's important to know who that is when we're thinking about firing off a removal spell because if if i'm advantaged and i'm able to sneak in just a little bit of damage i may not need to use a removal spell to force more I, and we'll get to like when and how to do that as we go through this. But like, if I'm slightly advantaged, I'm more likely to hold that removal. If I'm slightly disadvantaged, I'm probably more likely to use it so that I can become the one who is advantaged. Right. And, and I've talked about this before is that um, I think of, of a game of magic as a series of per percentages. Like uh, it's just a, a line graph or a timeline of percentages, uh, win percentages. So you start the game off, you're 50% to win, assuming all things equal. And for every decision you make or don't make, your percentage of to win changes until eventually somebody's 100% to win and your the opponent scoops or loses the game. Um, so, so you're right. You always want to be above 50% or working your way toward that 100% mark, right? You mm -hmm. want to be closing out the game as best as you can or getting back into it. If you're 5% to win, you know, the game's not over. The game's not hopeless. Uh, you can you can do make decisions to try to claw yourself back in. Now, keep in mind, some games are just unwinnable and that's fine. That's, that's how magic works. Um, but on the flip side of that, you also have some games are unlosable, right? So y the, the extra percentage points you're going to get are from the games that are in the middle where you can flex these decisions, flex your skill, um, and, and push those percentages in your favor as, as much as you can. Um, another thing to think about in this, this applies um to, you know draft and constructed we're mostly talking about it from a draft perspective though from a limited perspective or sealed perspective i guess 
um, is the composition of your deck. So you know your deck inside and out, or at least you should. You should always have your deck list up and be looking at it and saying, okay, what are my outs? What are my draws? If I use this removal spell now and I'm in top deck mode, what are the odds that I can draw another one later? Um, and if you know anything about your opponent's deck, so let's say it's game two or game three, the composition of your opponent's deck can also weigh into your decision. Um, you know, maybe they have a bomb rare that you need to save a piece of removal for. Maybe that's the only way you lose this game, for example. Um, so deck composition and paying attention to your opponent's deck um, also factors into these decisions that we're making. Yeah, and we are in a unique position as digital magic players that there's there's really no excuse not to know the contents of your deck at any given time. Like at at the very least, you can screen cap it and you know put it in paint and then just have it sitting there so that you can see the contents of your deck at any given time. Like how many removal spells do you have? What can you draw to get you out of or into a particular situation? So like a, a paper player may have to rely on memory for that. We just don't. Like it, one place you can improve your game dramatically if you're not doing this is just get those screen caps of your deck lists and, and make sure you have that up. I use Stream Decker while I'm streaming. It's it's a super good piece of software. Uh, Dave actually turned me on to it. Uh, he was using it before I was. So like I've got complete lists of all of the decks that I basically ever played or drafted and can pull right up, which is awesome. But like, if if you don't need to set that up, just take that screen cap, man. It 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 will make you better. Yeah, and one of the things that you're doing is you're counting, um, you know, the number of cards that are good for you out of your entire deck and expressing that as a percentage. And that's the easiest way to determine or to to help you figure out those things. So, um, while not necessarily related to removal, we frequently talk about playing to your outs. Um, where you know, if if you need to, if you need to play in a certain way that a top deck removal spell wins you the game or gets you back to even, you should be able to calculate that percentage of, you know, I have a 10% chance or a 15% chance to draw it next turn. Um, and every turn after that, it gets a little bit better. So even if you don't take screenshots of your deck, it's always a good exercise to go through those. Like, what are my outs? What are my best draws? Um, because it does remind you of what's in your deck and it kind of gives you that that mental repetition and makes it easier for you to just count your outs going forward in the future. Always be counting ABC. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then there's a couple of other things that they go in here too. Um, you know, the conditional, a condition of your removal is a damage based removal. Is it unconditional removal? Is it conditional removal? Um, and we'll also eventually talk about here as well is, uh, instance as sorceries. So using instance on your turn instead of source, uh, instead of an instant speed, using them as sorcery speed, uh, to kind of, you know, guarantee that you use your removal, for example, or to play around certain things that are in your opponent's hands. So we're going to walk through a whole bunch of different stuff, but essentially all of that comes together to make the, the final decision of, do I use my removal and what do I use my removal on if I'm using it this turn? Mm-hmm. Okay. So we'll back that up to the start. So you're sitting down from your opponent, you're shaking hands, you've done good games. Uh, you've, gone land go land go land go and now your opponent plays plays a card so you have a removal spell in your hand and now we can start evaluating whether we should use this removal spell so we talked about it at the start but the first thing that you do and this is probably the most important thing is the board state or the game state so there's a lot of things that go into this so first things first is well what's on the table right my opponent has a creature do i have a creature and you kind of evaluate um your essentially your percentage to win, but you're really just evaluating whether you're ahead or behind or at parity. Is that fair? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, and there's a bunch of different ways you can be ahead or behind. Um, 
And you have the advantage of having extra knowledge about the game state when you're making these decisions because you know what's in your hand. So you're not just evaluating the current game state, right? What what's in front of you on the board, but you're also evaluating what you will be doing on the next couple of turns with your hand. So are you going to curve out, for example? Um, that could influence your decision on making the pulling the trigger on using a removal spell. Um, one of the key concepts here, especially early in the game, I find, is concept of mana efficiency. Um, Travis, are you familiar with the term mana efficiency? Yeah, absolutely. So how would you define mana efficiency? So basically cheap cards or or ones that are giving you an effect for for the cost. So for example, like a six mana kill spell is not particularly mana efficient because often you will be killing something that costs less than six mana when you play it. Whereas a kill spell that costs two mana is particularly mana efficient um, because it's so cheap. And you can all, you can even get a little bit ahead. Like if I kill a four drop with that, I'm kind of ahead two mana. My opponent spent four, I've spent two, so I'm, I'm kind of two ahead. Right. And that's really key early in the game when both players are usually tapping out all of their mana. Mm-hmm. Right? So like that doesn't necessarily come into play late game um, where sometimes you just have to fire off a six mana removal spell on your opponent's two mana flyer because it's killing you right at that point mana efficiency is less important but where it is important is early in the game when you can gain sometimes you can gain a tempo advantage off of it as well um but also when it comes to you just want to make sure that you're playing spells out of your hand um so that you're keeping up with your opponent right you're keeping up with the joneses on that one um so one of the things that i look for in using early removal spells in in a, in a game like this so let's say my, my opponent played uh, a Mesa Unicorn, a 2-2 Lifelinker for two. And uh, and I'm on the play, and I didn't play a two-drop, but I have a Vicious Offering in my hand, right? So I can fire that off on, on my opponent's Mesa Unicorn, let's say. Um, or I can save that removal spell and use it at a, at a later point in the game because it does have the upside of being able to, to kill something with a minus five, minus five. One of the things that might push me toward using that early, not only is Mesa Unicorn a, a decent card, it's a decent target for a minus two, minus two, I would say. But if I look at my hand and I have a three drop and a four drop and a five drop and I've hit both of my land drops already and maybe I have another land in hand or something like that um, and I'm, I'm looking at curving out, I might fire this removal spell off end of turn because I might not have another opportunity to use it if I'm curving out. Mm-hmm. So you have mana efficiency because you're you're either trying to match or, or beat the opponent's mana cost of their creature but also you have the tempo of, well, I'm keeping up with them, I'm one-for-wanting them, and then hopefully curving out better than they are so that my board is advantageous on turns five or turn six or turn seven, assuming that I'm curving out. There's that, uh, because generally speaking, you do want to use as much mana each turn as you can. There's also the evaluation of, like, look at what the three drop is and what is your deck trying to do. So Mesa Unicorn is particularly scary if I'm a, a, a red-black deck and my 3-drop is a 3-2. Like, I'm absolutely terrified of that Mesa Unicorn and I'm going to kill it. Whereas if I'm a, a blue-black deck and I'm looking to grind them out and I've got a 2-3 in hand, maybe I don't care. I'm just like, sure, kill my guy, gain 2 life, doesn't matter to me. You used a removal spell on a 2-3. Like, there I feel like I got them if I can get them to kill a 2-3 or use a combat trick to get through a 2-3, and then I play, you know, a 2-4, I'm like, I am totally winning this game. So, like, what your deck is trying to do can come into play as well. Mm -hmm. And you'll notice that there's 
a lot of decisions that, or a lot of things that we talk about that go into this. So it's a very free-flowing conversation, just like how it is in the game of Magic, right? Like a game of Magic is so many different variables and so much going on that it's a very fluid kind of flow of consciousness, I guess, when you're trying to decide whether you're playing a removal spell or not, which is why a lot of people do this kind of naturally, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, they go, you go with your gut decisions and very few people actually, I think, sit down and think this out when it comes to your average player. Um, I think obviously the top players and the pros do this all the time, but again, they've done it so much that it becomes natural to them. And I so, think sometimes that becoming natural phase can hurt a little bit because it, it's become natural to me to try to use all of my mana every turn. And there's times where even I will fire off a removal spell because it's like, well, I've got two mana left over. We may as well use it for this. And then my opponent kills, plays a much better creature a couple turns later. And I'm like, I'm out of cards and I really wish I had that, that spell left. So like, I, I think the habits that you get into are worth kind of evaluating. Like, do I really need this thing to be dead? What's it going to, like, that? that's the other big evaluation. And it, it, it's not quite in this mana efficiency thing, and I'm sure we'll get there. But like, what is this creature going to do if I don't make it dead? Well, I mean, why don't we just go into that? So you mentioned a great concept when we were um, talking about this in, in the warm up is, looking to the future so asking the question if i don't kill this now or i don't play this removal spell now what happens next turn you don't have to look much further than that just evaluate what happens in the next turn so both yours and your opponent's next turn so what are the things that you're looking for when you ask that question if i don't kill this what happens next turn what are the different scenarios that you can you can think about in that in that scenario a big one for me is a, a creature with lopsided power and toughness. So like my opponent has, I don't know, a 4-2. And like I have a removal spell, I could kill it, you know, or I've got, you know, so many things I could draw that will just blank it. Like maybe I've got a bunch of 0-6 walls in the deck. And I've, I've watched a lot of people take 12 damage in that scenario and then finally fire off the removal spell anyway. So for me, it's like, how much damage am I going to take from this thing before I can finally answer it? Like, what are what are the life totals at? Like, if I'm at a lower life total, I'm more likely to just snap that one off. A, a good example in the current set is like, there's a 3-1 in the set, right? If unanswered, and, and sure, sapperlings, there's all sorts of ways to answer the darn thing. But if unanswered, that can deal, you know, six to nine points of damage and really put somebody ahead in a game. If, if I'm on the draw and I, you know, I have anything that can kill that on turn two, I'm probably just going to do it so that I don't just continually take damage from it. Because like opponent has a one mana combat trick and another creature, all of a sudden they're way ahead just in tempo, just because they've got so much more of a bigger board than me. Uh, whereas if I'm on the play and they play that and I've got a two, three, you know, or a one, four, God forbid, I'm just going to play that stuff out and, and, you know, let the trades happen and see if I can blank that board. Because, like, the longer the game goes, the worse that creature gets. Yeah. Sometimes you can get away with using your creatures as removal spells or creatures instead of removal spells. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned that a really good example of that is a 1 4. So you remember the, um, uh, what was it in Ixalan? The Sailor of Memes. Said, there you go. I wasn't thinking, I was thinking the green one, but Sailor of Memes is the better one where sometimes you just play a 1 4 and your entire opponent's board is just shut down. Right, and they, they can't attack with their X1s anymore, and you've effectively terminated those with a creature that stays on the board and acts as, you know, a permanent speed bump for all of those things. So sometimes you can evaluate the board position. You can say, well, I have this great wall that I'm going to play. I don't need to spend my removal spell off. And I've seen people, you know, use their removal spells on a 3-1 
when they had a one four in their hand and it's kind of like well okay well what are you doing like you've just you know you've you've effectively two for one yourself in, in in like that's the best way that i can think about it because that sailor of means is probably not killing anything else except that three one on the other side of the table um sure it can it can block two twos all day um but if your opponent floods the board out with two twos and three threes you know now it's it's gaining you two life a, a turn instead of acting as an actual removal spell for a creature so um yeah looking forward at a turn like what happens if you if you don't kill it i also like to look at what happens if i do kill it so flip those tables around now and we can start evaluating our board position compared to our opponents um, and looking to gain an advantage out of this. So for example, if I do kill that Macy Unicorn, maybe that opens up the way for my 3-2 haste creature that I get to play next turn. Or just um, your 3-2. Or, or, or just my 3-2 on future turns, right? So like I can sit down and evaluate and I can say that Macy Unicorn was going to crush me uh, because I have a bunch of X-2s and they get to gain life off of it and they, I spent more mana on my 3-2 than they spent on their 2-2. You know, they're gaining a little bit of an advantage there. Can I just fire off this removal spell, which is minus two, minus two? It's a good target for it. Excuse me. Um, and then start pushing that damage through. So that is another thing that you can evaluate is what do I gain out of this on the next turn? What is my play? Am I going to attack with it? Right. Am I going to attack next turn? Is it opening up the door? Um, or if I don't kill it, not only what is my opponent doing to me, but am I attacking back? Right. So I don't remove this and I look at my board and I say, well, I can remove this and swing for two damage guaranteed, or I can not remove this, swing for two damage and see if they block it and then evaluate from there. Mm-hmm. So, and a couple of things go into that decision as well. Is my is my removal instant or sorcery speed? So is it a combat trick or can it be used as a combat trick in the case that my opponent double blocks? So I think that simple task of looking forward to the next turn and trying to think from your opponent's shoes, put yourself in your opponent's position and say, you know, if I was blocking my board, so I'm going to attack with these two things, what's my opponent's best blocks? How are they going to block? Can I try to get a two-for-one out of it? There's a bunch of different scenarios you can kind of walk through there and try to figure out your opponent's best block and then act accordingly. So maybe their best block is really bad for you, and if they have some kind of combat trick or something like that is really bad for you, then maybe you fire off this removal spell if it's sorcery speed and you attack with your menace creature and, and all is happy, right? Like you... You, you try to engineer a scenario where, um, you know, you're still in the advantage and you've used your removal spell in a way that you're comfortable and happy with. Um, and I think that'll get you a lot of the way to becoming kind of a more solid, limited player, I would say, when it comes to using your removal spells. For sure. I, I also think, like, we've used the example of the, the negative two spell from Dominaria. I think uh, Moment of Raving from Ixalan Block is actually a little bit of a better example for me. Uh, and, and we'll use some some examples from various sets because as as Dave's mentioned, vicious offering can get better in the late game. Like once your you know two two is no longer valuable, you can kill a five five with it. Whereas moment of raving is basically never doing anything other than what it says on the card, which is negative two negative two. So like if I have the opportunity to trade that for a two two, and my hand is you know a couple lands and a bunch of four drops, I'm just going to do that. Because, like, that, that's what it does. Yeah, it can get a little bit better in combat later, and I can use it as a kind of a reverse combat trick. All of that's fine. But if, if it means I'm going to take somewhere like six damage from a two drop, I'm just going to fire it off. Because if the opponent has a three drop to follow that up with, I, I mean, so many times I've watched people have moment of craving in hand. The opponent plays a two drop. They're like, well, I'll see if I draw something to answer that. 
and then they draw and they they don't and they play their land. They're like, well, maybe they'll play something better. And the opponent tacks, deals them two, and then plays a three three. And they're like, well, I guess I'll just fire it off now. It's like you you could have done that and just not taken the damage. And like it's it's not that two damage necessarily matters, but it's like there's there's like you would never choose to sit down and start the game at eighteen life. I, I would never pick that. See, I think that's interesting because I think there are times where I'm glad you mentioned this. I think there are times where you don't fire off the removal in combat to see if you get a better target. Um, I, I really do, especially in a format where, um, you know, maybe there's a lot of really good X twos, like three twos and four twos and things like that for three mana. Sometimes you can gain, you can get a better creature at the cost of two life. So I think that is an actual decision point. You might err to the side of, well, I just always, I just never let them go through combat with it. Um, I always get it before they swing or as they're swinging and try to try to take it out uh, so I don't lose any life. But I think there is merit to sometimes holding around and taking the damage and seeing if there's a better target. Maybe your conditional removal spells, so specifically like minus two, minus two, um, you that, might want to fire off I mean. sooner. Yeah. Right. But like if it's a, if it's a spell like cast down, right, where you can get a lot more things with it, where you can get those three threes, I think cards like that are more interesting to sit down and decide, am I taking this damage at the risk of them not playing something? And then I look dumb by firing it off on the thing that dealt me damage at the end of the turn. But I think... I think in certain scenarios, I think that is a legitimate thing to consider, right? Is that you hope your opponent doesn't play a legendary creature. They play a 3-3 or a 4-2 or something like that. And you're like, haha, I got them. Um, but then you have to run the risk of looking dumb, like I said. Yeah, And, I, and, and, and I've done that before. I've looked dumb, but I've also looked like a genius. So I think I think it's a, it's a risk-reward scenario. Are you going to take the safe out where you know that you're preventing two damage and you're removing a two-drop of some kind? Um, or are you going to gamble and spin the wheel and see what your opponent plays? It's kind of like holding up a counter spell versus actually playing a creature. You know, you're kind of locked in and you're like, I'm going to counter whatever they play. And then they play something dumb and you're like, yeah, maybe I don't want to counter that. But you feel like you have to because you've locked yourself into that line. I think it's along those same lines. I just, I, I think it's a, are you too proud moment, right? Mm -hmm. Like, again, lo looking at the hand, let's go to this format. They've played the Knight of New Banalia on the play. You have a cast down in your hand, two more lands, and some great four drops. Like, I'm ju I'm just snapping that off, and I'm doing it on my turn. I'm doing it right now because if they untap an adamant will it, like I'm just I'm just losing a game. I have like real business playing. Like that's the other thing. Like I'm not going to wait for them to attack to cast it down. I'm just firing it off right now. On on your on your turn. So we should talk about that too. Is um instance as sorceries and i think this is a big one for a lot of people is i said that um you know we talked about this last week on the warm-up show as well this was the mystery topic for last week by the way is i had a real level up moment when i went from using my instance on my turn to using them on my opponent's turn right end of turn bolt your thing mm -hmm. and then i had another level up when i came all the way back around and I started using it on my turn again. Are you familiar with like the galaxy brain meme, right? Where it's yeah. like, you know, the first panel is, uh, you know, using instance as removal on your turn and then using them on your opponent's turn. I feel like the last one is using them in both turns where like you're, you're doing a good mix of using them on your turn and using them on your opponent's turn. So what I do when I go through evaluating using them on my turn versus my opponent's turn is, does this thing need to be dead? 
do I need this guaranteed dead? Um, and then also, what colors does my is my opponent playing? And what what combat tricks or, or counter spells or whatever in the format? But basically, if I need it dead, I am not, and my opponent's tapped out. I am not taking any risks. I'm going to fire that thing off, and I'm going to get f six value out of it. Period. <laughs> end of story. No, sure. it, it's true, right? But if my opponent happens to have white mana up, like two white mana up, um, on my turn, then I evaluate the number of cards in their hand. What are the chances that I think they have Adamant Will? Have them been trying to play like they've had Adamant Will? And then I will evaluate whether to use it on my turn or not. Because obviously using it on your opponent's turn, you can do things like getting a two-for-one, right? They go to throw dub on it, you get them. So it's kind of, again, that risk-reward is... You know, are you going to take the guarantee payoff of removing your opponent's creature, guaranteed, um, or a less of a risk if they have mana up of them drawing Adamant Will, let's say, or a Counterspell, let's say, versus trying to get them on their turn um, and, and trying to surprise them with this as opposed to just firing them off and giving them full and complete information when it comes to their turn. Well, let's let's look at it too. Like, as far as do you need the thing to be dead? Adam at Will's a good example, and we continue to use the cast down in three one example. But let's say it's a little bit later in the game; they're still beating me to death with a three one. The board's relatively clear. I, I need the thing dead. If if I kill it now and they have Adam at Will, okay, they saved their guy. We had a one for one. If I wait until their turn and they swing with it, and now I go for it, not only did they counter my card, they dealt me an extra two points of damage. And if I'm using a premium removal spell on a 3-1, that two points of damage is going to be pretty relevant too. So like the big one for me is like, like I, I almost always just fire off removal if I need it dead on my turn because there's so many ways to get you. Now the, the other one, the other way around is like how prevalent are counter spells in the format, right? Because if they've got two mana up and I'm sniffing negates and negate is just main decked or there's mana leak in the format or they've got three mana up and you know that there's a cancel variant that people play, you'd almost always want to play it on your opponent's turn so that they don't get the advantage of using that three mana, right? So like all of this stuff is stuff that you need to be thinking about when you're making that decision. Yeah. It's also easy to start to overthink a lot of this stuff and put your opponent on cards that they either have not been playing like they have or that you just can't beat, right? We talked about this before is it's like, well, you know, I, I can't beat an adamant will. So for example, on you, you use it on your turn so that at least they're using they're using it in a position that's the worst case scenario for them, right? And you take it out of their hand so that you can block their creature later, let's say. Um, and, you know, you know they have an adamant will. Do they play two adamant wills, right? So if you can get it out of their hand, it makes future the future likely likeliness of them having another adamant will maybe significantly lower, right? Or even zero. Um, so you really have to think about it, but don't be too proud to use your instance on your turn, right? It's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, um, but you obviously you're not going to get two-for-ones out of it. And as we've said before, two-for-ones win, win games of magic. So um, I, that's why I say that I do a mix, right? And it really depends on the threat. If it's like a like a 2-2 Mesa Unicorn, and it's like, I can block it at some point later, whatever, fine. I can use my creatures as removal, so I'll maybe try to stretch out getting a 2-for-1 out of it, right? Or my opponent has, a really good example of this is my opponent has um, an artifact, uh, an equipment on the board. Um, let's say the Forebearer's Blade, right? 3 to equip. So they go 2-drop Mesa Unicorn, 3-drop Forebearer's Blade, don't play anything else. Turn 4 comes around, 
and I have an instant speed removal spell, am I going to save it and try to get their get them on tempo by them equipping the Forebearer's Blade onto their Mesa Unicorn and not developing their board? Or am I going to fire it off on my turn so they don't have a target to put the Forebearer's Blade on, period, um, and then they're going to play a creature and also not be able to equip the, the Forebearer's Blade? So do I want to... You know, how do I want to play this? How do I want to tempo them out? And, and what am I looking at gaining there? Let's walk through that, because I actually think that's a really good one. So they've played a two-drop and then a three-drop equipment. And how much is it to equip that? It's three as well, isn't it's, it? It's three. So they can do it on turn four and potentially have one mana left over. Okay, so I, I think in that case, you would almost never use that on the Mesa Unicorn, right? Because, like, the, the worst-case scenario for you like catastrophe is they attack you with the Mesa unicorn. You take the two points of damage. They untap and go land and play two more, two drops. Like that's the only way that goes bad for you. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if they attack you with the Mesa unicorn and you don't kill it, it means they have another creature they're going to play. Otherwise they would have just equipped it. And if they go to equip it and then you kill it, you've basically made them sink three mana into something that didn't have an effect. Right. So what you're saying though, is you don't use it on your turn. That's Correct. the time where you save it for your opponent's turn because you're basically, you have near perfect information in that scenario. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing you don't know is what they're trying to do on their turn. So obviously if they go to equip, then you feel like a genius. And if they don't go to equip, then you can make that decision is do you use it in combat to save the two points of damage or do nev- you never do that? <laughs> or do you kill their, their two drop that they play after that, right? Or their three drop that they play after that. So, yeah. um, right. But I think what this demonstrates as well is that when you're evaluating this, it's not one large scenario that you're that you're trying to piece together all the all the, uh, the pieces of the puzzle to. You're looking at each piece individually, and you already know the answers to a lot of this, these questions. So, for example, for you, you already know that when that Mesa Unicorn's attacking you, you're probably just going to fire off that removal spell, right? You're not going to take the two points of damage. Um, so you don't have to evaluate that situation. All you have to do is evaluate everything before that situation so and we've already done that we've already evaluated i'm going to try to tempo my opponent out because they have the equipment on board right so now it's like an if then scenario so if they do this i'm firing off my removal spell and if they don't i'm either not or or i am firing off my, my removal spell depending on how you approach that scenario so the upside to all of these questions is that quite frequently you already know the answer to them you're just piecing them to together in a logical order to get to a final conclusion so it's a bunch of it's like a flow chart picture it that way it's a bunch of if thens um and all you're looking for is you're looking for a reason to fire off your removal and if everything comes up false everything answers no then you just don't fire off your removal and you save it for the next turn so you're looking for a reason to do it um as opposed to the opposite where you're looking for a reason to talk yourself out of doing it so basically ask yourself a bunch of these questions and if you answer yes should I fire off my removal in those scenarios? Then you go ahead and do it. Yeah, I tend to be very stingy with my removal. And I, I guess that's exactly what you're describing there is a scenario where like, is there anything on my board that can handle what they just played? Is there anything that I could draw? If we're, you know, late game and mana is not necessarily a concern. Is there anything that I could draw that could answer this? Because if I've got, you know, one blessed light in my deck, I'm going to be really stingy about what I use that on. It needs to be something that's just straight up going to win the game or generate massive advantage for my opponent uh, for me to be willing to play that. Now, things change a lot if you're dramatically behind, right? Like if I've had a relatively slow start, I've got a 2-3 out and my opponent's just hitting me in the air with three power flyers. There's really not much of a decision there. And, And that's okay. You don't need to like have an internal debate about this. Just bolt the bird. 
exactly. Bolt the bird. Um, but that's also that question that you ask yourself. If I don't kill it, what happens? Right. Yeah. I'm on a, th- I'm on a three turn clock. I'm on a two turn clock. I'm on a one turn clock. Like you better do something about that before you die. Um, so it, it's really easy, I think, to, to, to look at those scenarios. Um, once you're asking yourself those questions, what happens next turn? What happens next turn? Always yeah. be asking yourself that. Um, yeah, I think you mentioned a good one there is, so let's flip the tables around. So let's say we're not losing the game. Let's say we're winning the game, right? So we're we're 80% to win from this point. We have a very good boarded board advantage here. Um, you know, pushing through damage, I think, is a key concept when it comes to using removal. And I think a lot of people, not a lot of people, I think some people do this wrong. I've seen people play this way where, you know, I'm at 20, you're at 16, I have two two twos on board. You have a, a one three on board. I use my removal spell on your one three and I hit you for four. I would never right? do that. I know you wouldn't do that. A lot, some people would, right? Because they're trying to push through damage. They feel like they're the beat down. They're like this extra two points of damage might mean might mean something. Or I have two two twos and you have a three two and I bolt you a three two and I swing through, right? Where like there's there's risk of a trade on one of my creatures um, and I just want to get four points of damage through. Now. Obviously, the later the game goes, like, I'm on 20, you're on 16, you should never do that because that extra two points of damage percentage-wise when it comes to win percentage is very, very minuscule um, compared to holding that removal for, like, a bomb that your opponent has, for example. Um, But if I'm at, you know, 10 and you're at 6, maybe getting you to 2 means that, you know, I just need to stick a threat in the air or I just need to get one more threat than you do at some point later on. So maybe I want to fire this off and you got to play a removal spell or, or and a creature or two creatures in order to survive next turn, right? There's and also the scenario that... too where like what you're describing where you have the the one three and I have a pair of grizzly bears. If the rest of my hand is land and you've missed a land drop, I may just fire it off because that may be the only chance I have to win this game is that you just get exactly. mana screwed and I can hit you for four for a few turns and then draw something. Exactly. So you have to look at the whole board state there but you have to ask yourself if like if i remove my my opponent's one three what are the odds that they can play something next turn that shuts me down or that brings this game state back to neutral and i just fired off my removal spell in a one three that didn't matter in the long run so i think the scenario you're describing is very risky with with a high potential for a payoff but i think that the risk is so large that you have to be sure of what you're doing or sure of the risks before you take that yeah, there's also there's... a question of like how how close to lethal are you? Because the mm-hmm. the lower the life totals get, the more interested I am in making a play like that. Another thing you've mentioned is like thinking of it as the aggressor. One thing that I've noticed about myself, and I I, I bet there's a lot of other spiky magic players that suffer from this a little bit. I play like a golden god when I'm behind. To the point of I can name the cards that are in my opponent's hand. I can tell you exactly how many copies I have of answers in my deck and what my percentage is to draw them. Like, I'm amazing. If I get ahead, I start to get a little sloppy. I start to get a little sloppy where I'm like, well, they went for the creature enchantment on that dude and I lightning bolted it in response. They're not going to catch up from this. I'll swing in with my team. Oh, crap. Settle the wreckages in this format. And all, all of a sudden, I'm just wrecked. So, like, I, it, it is worth thinking about these things when you're ahead. Because I've had this scenario where I'm like, well, you know, I, I just two for one my opponent. Things are looking great. I've got two creatures. They played a dude. Let's get it out of the way. Force some damage. Put them to, you know, six with my grizzly bears still in play. And then they untap and, you know, play the, the card that makes two knights. I'm like, well, they just caught right back up. 
we got a game on again, and I blew off a removal spell that I, I might could have used in a double block scenario or on my opponent's flyer that ends up killing me nine turns later. So, like, stop and think about this stuff. It, it actually matters, and I, I think you need to pay 100% attention to the games you're playing until they're won or lost. Mm-hmm. Um, the easiest removal spells you can use, though, um, obviously speaking, like, these are the easy ones, are your two-for-ones, but also swinging for lethal, right? Yeah. Or, or close or close to guaranteed lethal, right um you know your opponent has a three five reach i've got a three two flyer you know and they're at six life i'm gonna kill that five three five reach with whatever removal spell i have i don't care because i got him on a two turn clock right i will take that risk because they're so close to dead um and obviously two for ones those are the easiest ones of all if your opponent voltron's up you know you nuke it it becomes a must answer um so those are the easiest ones but those are things to consider as well there too right is playing out those scenarios what is my clock you know what happens what's what does the next turn look like when i'm attacking here um and and did i get card advantage out of it i think that's also one that we just take for granted is that we're always looking for those two for ones but nobody ever sits down and asks how the two for one feels it's like how did you do there two for one did you enjoy getting cast down with your aura spell on you like ask ask those questions um and don't talk to yourself and give yourself answers just pretend the cards answer you you know, another thing I'm remembering, I actually used to go through this exercise when I thought about what happens next turn. I assumed, I used to assume that my opponent either had a hill giant or a removal spell for my second best creature. I'd say, okay, assuming that they have that, how is this board state progressing? Right? Because like at the time when I was playing, 3-3 was the most common creature size and the removal spell was conditional enough that they usually couldn't kill my best thing, but they could kill my second best thing. So that's that's what I used to always put my opponents on, and I, I tend to play in, in a position where I expect they're going to play a medium creature or kill my second best dude. That's an interesting way to put it, and I think that's a really good average in the dark, right? Your average creature is a hill giant, and your average removal spell is somewhat conditional. So I think that's interesting. I'm maybe I'll try to I'll try to think about that when it comes to if I don't know what the future looks like. Although I am a wizard, sometimes it feels like when I'm calling my opponent's top decks. So <laughs> yeah. Um, I know we did a huge brain dump there, right? And there's a lot of other things that go into it. But I think if you sit down um, when you're thinking about your removal spells and say, ask yourself, what's the game state? And that includes the board state. You know, are we at a parity? Am I behind? Am I ahead? How much am I attacking for if I do this? How much am I getting attacked for if I don't do this? Um, what other cards do I have in my deck? Can I use creatures as removal? Um, or you also actually, this is an interesting concept we missed. Uh, we wanted to talk about here is... Um, you know, am I overloaded so much on removal that I can afford to one for one my opponent, you know, willy nilly with whatever I have in my hand? Because maybe I have nine removal spells in my deck and and ten creatures or something like that. And I just need to make sure that I one for one myself with my opponent. I think you called that creature replacement value. Is that right? Yeah. And it, it, I've seen this happen to people that have grown up playing magic in the modern era where removal typically was something that you didn't get a whole lot of. Um, and you're used to using creatures as removal. So we've talked about that. Like, if you ever played Demir in Gatecrash Draft, you know what I'm talking about. There was a 2-2 zombie rat. Zombie wasn't relevant, and the flavor text was kind of cool, but that's really all that card had going for it. And the control decks were playing it. It wasn't because they wanted to aggro you out with grizzly bears. It's because your opponents were attacking with 3-1s and 3-2s, and you just needed something to trade with it. The removal wasn't so good that you could just fire it off on a that early. So we're kind of used to, in our, our slower or mid-range decks, 
playing some two twos or some two drops, you know, format depending. Maybe you need five of them, maybe you need two of them. It's, it's going to change some, but you're playing some mediocre two drops that you're not expecting to win the game with. You just want to trade off. I've played some decks where I actually had a lot of removal, like to the point that my creatures were basically all there to try to kill my opponent. And at that point, I need to go ahead and use that removal to answer my opponent's creatures because I'm not going to be able to use creatures to do it. If they play a 3-1 and like I, I just don't have any 2-drops in my deck, but I've got four copies of, of Moment of Raving, I need to just go ahead and fire that off. And you'll see that in constructed control decks. Like There's plenty of constructed control decks that aren't playing any 2-drop creatures. They're just playing all removal spells in those slots. And sometimes you'll see that in a draft or a sealed pool. So make sure that if you've, you've gotten in the habit of, I'm going to save my removal, I'm not going to use it, I need to be really stingy with this, to like actually look at your creature count. Because if, if it's anywhere under 12, you may need to use some of these spells earlier than you'd like. Obviously, I want to use Moment of Craving on a Windrake when my opponent goes to suit it up with an aura. That feels great. But if I'm too proud to use it on the, the two-drop that they just cast, you know, they may get an eight points of damage with the thing before I can actually stabilize. And there's nothing worse than that actual stabilizing moment. You've still got the Moment of Craving, and then they just kill your dude and hit you for another two. Like, that that's the thing that you're risking, and where I say look to the future, what if they can kill your dude? Because I've been in that scenario where it's like, well, I've got a removal spell, I could kill this thing, but in, in a, a turn or two I'll be able to block it. And then they play something else, you know, and it, you've not used your sorcery speed removal, it comes back to your turn and you play a blocker, and they just kill your blocker, hit you for six. Ah, uh, well, alright, and then next turn you're like, well, I can play this four or five, or I can just kill that. Like, well, I'll play the 4-5. It blocks everything. And they untap and kill your 4-5. Hit you for another 6. And now all of a sudden you're, you're just basically dead. So, like, if you've got these removal spells and they're filling that slot, don't, don't be afraid to fire them off even if they're the good ones. I guess you could think of it as the more removal you have, the worse targets you're going to have to use them on by nature. Yeah, if you have 6 removal spells in your deck, you know, using the first one on your opponent's 6th worst spell in their deck is probably pretty good. Yeah. Right? And then you work your way up 5th, 4th, 1st, you know, or 3rd, se- or 2nd, 1st, right? So, you know, it, it really just depends on the quality and the quantity of removal in your deck. So know your deck, obviously. Yeah. That goes back to screenshotting it. Like, we mentioned this earlier, but I, I honestly feel you're doing yourself a disadvantage if you're a digital magic player and you're not screen capping your deck. Absolutely. Do you want to walk through some scenarios that I got here? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. All right, so I've prepared a couple of scenarios here. So the first one, these are both Dominaria drafts. So we know Dominaria draft quite well by this point. So this is game one versus an unknown opponent. You are playing red-green splashing Slimefoot, and it's an easy splash. You've got uh, a dual land and uh, a growth from the ashes and a skittering surveyor, but that's kind of mostly irrelevant here. You have six quality removal spells in your deck. You have two Shiv and Fire. That's the red instant shock that kicks for four damage. Not five, by the way, which I've made that mistake once or twice. Me too. A wizard's lightning. That's the three damage, uh, three mana. You have a fight with fire. That's uh, five damage for three mana, which can be kicked for 10. And you have two fire interventions, which is the five mana sorcery speed deal five damage. So you keep a hand of uh, two two drops and five lands. So good mix of red and green. And your two drops are the average red two drops. Your opponent mulls to six. And they are on the play. They lead on a forest. You play Mountain and draw Baloth Gorger. So your hand is now two two drops and a Baloth Gorger and a bunch of lands. 
Your opponent plays a second forest, then they play the O2 Druid that taps for one mana or two for kicked spell. You play a forest and play your two drop. Your opponent misses their land drop and passes. You draw for the turn, Shiv and Fire, and you play your third land. So you have a two drop. Oh, sorry, you drew a land on the previous turn as well. So now you have a two drop in hand that you can play. Uh, you have Shiv and Fire that you can also play. And you have your Bayloth Gorger in hand as well. So the question is, do you fire off Shiv and Fire on your opponent's Druid? I 100% do if they miss a land drop. I think mm-hmm. I 100% do if they make a land drop and pass. So you so, think if they have four mana available, you still bolt it off to take them off of their potential five drop the next turn? Yeah, so so the thing here I'm thinking about is I can already play the two drop, and I'm going to play the two drop, and I want to play the two drop. I probably mm-hmm. attack first. Just it, uh, This is one of those scenarios about it having instant speed matters, right? So I'm 100% attacking first. Why? Because there's a two-mana combat trick that gives something plus two, plus two. There's a chance they block my two-drop and fire that off. Where they're like, hey, I have this in hand, I'm mana screwed, and I can get a two-for-one there, and that'd be awesome. That'd be really great. So I'm attacking first. They're likely to just take it. But if they've missed a land drop, and the best thing they could do with two-mana was present this, then that means when they draw another land, they're probably not going to have anything to do with it right? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe they were color screwed or whatever. And then the, the final decision is like, I'm almost a hundred percent going to slam that Bayloth next turn. Meaning if I don't do it this turn, I'm kind of locking myself into using it for four damage where all it's going to do is kill the Bayloth that they played after I've played mine and missed an attack with my two drops that have now been outclassed by their Bayloth. So like I'm giving them a chance to get out of mana screw and gain four life by not using it this turn. So I, I think I'm 100% firing that off. Not to mention, again, there's more removal spells and better removal spells in the deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's let's just fire it off, man. Okay. So you're looking at the tempo play of keeping them off mana, um, but also an efficiency play because you can play two spells this turn because you have the three mana available and you plan on playing your Bailoth Gorger next turn. So those are all good evaluation points. So let's flip this around a little bit. And let's say that you actually drew Fight with Fire, which is a three-mana removal spell, Sorcery Speed. How does that change, or if does that change your decision now where it's not Shiv and Fire, you have to be a little less efficient with your cards. Fight with Fire is also just better, naturally speaking. Um, But if you play it, you obviously can't play a true drop um, at the same time. Does that change your decision? Yeah, it really does. Isn't that interesting? It is. So the, the, the biggest thing there, and I do like the attack first with the Shiv and Fire. I'm still going to attack first here, but I'm I'm knowingly walking into the combat trick, which mm-hmm. kind of terrifies me a little bit. Um, yeah, that's actually pretty scary. Yeah, I don't, so I don't you... think I can kill it there because I have to develop that board first, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I'm going to use a removal spell while I'm the beatdown, I need it to get in more than two points of damage. And that efficiency is just so out of whack, right? And now in this scenario, let's assume they go land and Baloth Gorger, because that's something you would play in a deck with that Druid. Then I could just untap and kill the Gorger and hit them, or play my own and hold back. Like, I'm flooded out. Maybe we're going to get to nine mana. You don't know. We could just burn everything. So, like, it's turned everything completely around by swapping those two removal spells. I don't have the chance for the instant speed blowout. Um, and I, I don't think I'm going to win the game with just a grizzly bear in play, even if they are mana screwed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting, right? And, and 
in game, I think you, you answer all of those questions without actually saying anything out loud, but actually sitting down and thinking about it, it's amazing how different those two scenarios are. Um, and I'm going to share with you what, what happened, and this is very much results-oriented, but it also leads to another thing is um, evaluating what threats your opponent could have. Now, because we're game one and in the dark and our opponent didn't play their other color, we don't have this information. But if it was game three and we knew our opponent was green-white, you know, now we have... And we knew maybe they had uh, uh, Danitha in the deck or a, or a Sisse in the deck, for example, like powerful creatures that can get out of control that become must answers that also may change your decision on whether you fire this off on a, on a mana dork or not. So I did, this was the Shiv and fire scenario. I did fire it off on the, on the mana dork. I attacked first. They didn't block. I played my two drop and I fired off the removal before they untapped. So they couldn't use their mana on their turn. You know, they went white, uh, white source Danitha, um, which was fine, right? You know, no big deal. Um, but then I lost that game because they found a way to equip it with a black blade and then beat me down for a million lifelink. But Obviously, how was I to know? But I think given the information that we knew there, I think that was the we made the correct play. We made the most efficient use of our resources. We tried to keep our opponent off of resources. We were trying to play the beatdown and a tempo game at the same time. And we were making use of our four drop on turn four, assuming that our opponent did not have, let's say, a creature that could block it. In retrospect, you know, if I would have known that they had great creatures in their deck that had two power or two toughness, maybe I save that and don't fire it off and, and let them maybe like try to get them later um because that is the way that they can beat me they block all of my two drops for example um but i think given the information that we had i think that was a 99 percent correct decision um you know i I just think that's it right i'm I'm gonna pick on you here if we're in that exact same scenario and my opponent lays their hand down on the table and shows me that they have danitha in it and a black blade i'm a hundred percent making the same play no i'm not I, I am. I, I am not. I because, am not. Because because that is the only way I can lose that game. If if they show me Danitha and Blackblade, that is the only way that I'm losing that game. Is if is if they stick that Danitha and put a Blackblade on it. Because I, I I can draw my two fire interventions, but nothing I have, aside from fight with fire and fire interventions, will deal with that card. That that's that's gotta be so wrong. No. Because they they, it, they would have to rip a planes. So you assume that they're ten, nine planes in the deck, right? If they're an average deck, nine to eight planes, there's yeah. a really good percentage to draw it within a couple of turns. Plus, they can if they just they could just play the black blade, right? They obviously I don't think they had the black blade in their hand because they would have played it, right? Mm-hmm. But even but it, but let's say they did, right? Let's say they they played it with their three mana, so they tapped out with their druid and played black blade. You know, if if their hand is a bunch of green cards or a bunch of white cards and Danitha's in there. Um, and they have to top deck a planes to essentially win the game. I don't think there's any way that I kill that dork. I think I save it all for whatever they're going to equip with the black blade. Because if they don't, if they don't have another legend in their hand, black blade is a dead card. Yeah, I, I suppose if maybe if they splay it out exactly like that, we've got a conversation. But I, mm-hmm. I, I still can't get myself around bolt the bird. Like, I agree, one hundred percent. It's such a good tempo play, and in the dark, right? We don't we don't know enough, right? So what I'm saying, I think we're at, what I came away with this is I felt real bad because I lost that game as a result, and I felt like I made a poor decision with my removal spell. You didn't, but though. When I, but when I step back, I made the correct decision in this scenario. 
Yeah, I, I, I think you had to, right? Like, mm-hmm. again, I, I, I was probably using too much hyperbole there. Like, if they show me that Danith is in hand, I still make that play. But I suppose maybe I would need to think about it if my opponent actually lays their hand down on the table and says, this is what I'm doing against you. But I, right. I can't realistically envision a scenario like that. Like, think thinking about it, what is the most threatening thing they could do with three mana if they couldn't do anything with three mana this turn? Mm-hmm. Probably not a lot. You know, as it turns out, we're wrong on that calculation. But like, I also try to think about like how much better can this removal spell be? And Shiv and Fire in your hand with extra lands can actually be a little bit better than just getting that out of the way. But the the chance to just shut your opponent out of the game, I think, is too high to to give up there. So I'd have made I'd have made the play a hundred percent of the time, and then complained about Black Blade. I agree, and and that's essentially what I did, which is fine. But that leads me into this other (laughs) scenario. And this other scenario is interesting, too, because we have more information about our opponent's deck, and and we can see how that information kind of changes our decision-making here. So we'll wrap this up with one last scenario, and then we'll call it a podcast. So uh, there's another draft. We're in the finals of a Dominaria draft. Uh, Both you and your opponent are in top deck mode. It's game three. All right? So you're playing white-black. You have a a 3-2 on the ground and a 3-2 flyer. So you have an Avon Sentry and the the Trapper or whatever. You have no legendaries in your deck that can tap things down. So it's just a 3-2. Your opponent has a 1-1 token and a 3-3 flyer on board. Your opponent does on 6 life and you are on 10 life. Notable cards that your opponent showed in game 2 were Lyra the Baneslayer Angel. And they have the mana, they have enough mana to cast it if they draw it. And both you and again, you and your opponent are in top deck mode. Sorry, your opponent has one card in hand and you're in top deck mode. You draw eviscerate. So once again, your opponent has a three two, or a one-one on the ground and a three-three in the air, and you have a three-two flyer and a three-two on the ground. Your opponent has one card in hand and has white, white mana up. So your options are do you remove the three-three flyer and try to push extra damage through? So you swing for six, and your opponent has to chump block. Or do you hold the removal? And if so, what do you attack with? And the only reason you would hold that removal spell is because of the monster under the bed, the Baneslayer Angel. Because that, that's a must-kill, obviously. If your opponent plays that card, they're probably winning the game. So let, let's so let's play that scenario through. So what are the different... What happens if you attack, right? So if you just attack without removing anything, assume your opponent's going to block your 3-2 flyer, and they're going to chump the creature on the ground and potentially use... Gideon's Reproach or Seal Away to remove one of your creatures. If you remove the 3-2 Flyer, you swing for 6, they chump block, and potentially again, they could use the Seal Away or Gideon's Reproach, if they have one in hand, um, to remove your Flyer. And now you're down a removal spell. So what, what are we looking to accomplish with our removal spell here? Do we need to save it or should we spend it? And if so, you know... In what order are we doing that in? I think in the blind in that scenario, and I, I like I had an initial gut reaction, and then I, I needed to kind of check myself and decide why I was doing that. Um, I think my initial reaction is to swing with both mm-hmm. and hold the removal spell. Mm-hmm. Because what what's going to happen there? Either they trade flyers... And take three, leaving themselves with a 1-1 and an unknown card in hand. Maybe it's a land. They're going to have to chump my ground guy next turn. This is good for me. They take six and die. This is good for me, but nobody's going to do that. Maybe they have a removal spell, as as you've mentioned. There's a couple different ways to interact with something in combat. Maybe they have a combat trick, right? And they're, they're going to use that. 
Uh, once I know what that last card is and it's handled, it may end up with them having a 3-3 flyer in play, me having a 3-2 on the ground, and them being empty-handed and me having the Eviscerate. Like, if that's a scenario, we're good. I know they don't have the Baneslayer Angel because they would have played it, right? Like, right. you're not going to hold that. So, like, the only thing they could realistically be holding is... A, I, I feel like they'd probably fire off a removal spell, too, unless I showed them something great. Right? But maybe they wouldn't. Maybe they're they're holding a removal spell. So, like, how bad is it if I don't swing with the flyer? If we just sit there and they untap and cast a removal spell on the flyer, they're going to get in three damage, the life totals are a lot closer, and now I'm going to have to kill the darn thing anyway. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think my gut there is attack and see what happens, and then probably still not kill it and wait one more turn. Because you have a comfortable enough life total compared to your opponent? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, like if they trade the flyers, I'm relatively happy. Like, and then I've got the opportunity next turn. Let's say they play a decent ground creature or board the Baneslayer Angel or whatever. I can still always kill it and then attack it on the ground and make them make that chomp. Um, maybe I draw a combat trick or something like that. And I'm, I'm a little sad that I, I didn't keep my other dude around. Um, so that, that might even play into it too. Like, do we have two adamant wills in the deck? Uh, no, your all your removal spells are black. So you've got vicious offerings, eviscerates and things like that. Um, I don't remember the exact count. I want to say four. Two eviscerates, two vicious offerings. And if I remember correctly, one of each had been used. So you have another vicious offering in the deck, now that I think about it. So there's literally nothing else that can kill that Bane Slayer Angel if they have That's, it. And exactly, which is which is a good question to ask, right? So we sat and we asked ourselves, what's left in our deck? If I told you I had eight removal spells left in the deck, fired off 100% of the time, you'll draw another one for the Bane Slayer Angel. Yeah, by the time they draw it, right? Exactly. So that's what I'm um, thinking. So, so there's a good question to ask, ask, right? And it kind of fits into that scenario. So um, what I actually did was interesting. I had the same gut, re- gut, gut reaction as you is swing with everything. And that's kind of what chat was saying. I actually only swung with the 3-2 on the ground. Okay. Okay. So if they have a removal spell, such as Gideon's Reproach, Seal Away, or a combat trick, I only lose my 3-2 on the ground. So now I can either use my 3-2 to block their, their flyer if I need to, or I can kill their their flyer on a later turn and start swinging in for damage because they can't block it anymore, right? So if I feel like they haven't drawn their Baneslayer and Angel yet, I can push my damage through now. Now I can fire it off, right? There's also the scenario that potentially they block my three two with their three with their flyer. I don't know why they would, but there's a chance that they do. Yeah. Um, or they chump with their one one, and we're in a better board position than we were before anyway. So, but I think at a minimum, saving the Eviscerate for our opponent's Baneslayer Angel, I think is so crucial because of the lack of removal in our deck versus if we had so much more removal, I'm going to go for the lethal. I'm going to go for the kill and force the chump and make them have a removal spell or else be dead in two turns. Now, say right? And, it, and if they top deck Baneslayer Angel, well, whatever, we'll get there at some point. Yeah. God, it, it, it's so tough though, right? Because like you, you want to just fire it off and swing in and assume they've got to land. They have to chump block your guy, and you've got two lethal attackers next turn, and it's going to be great. Mm-hmm. It, it is, right? If Obviously, if my opponent's on three life, that's a much easier decision to make, because if they don't have it, they're dead. Yeah. Right? But if being on six life and them guaranteed to have at least one more turn, you know, if there's 20 cards left in the library, that's 5% chance they draw Baneslayer Angel. Am I okay with that? Plus the percentage chance that they have a removal spell. Because if, if they... Here's the worst case scenario, I would say, is that they they destroy the flyer with Gideon's Reproach or Seal Away. 
they chump the 3-2 on the ground, and then play a blocker. Yeah. That is 100% the worst case scenario. And it's very, in white, they absolutely could, right? Um, that is 100% the worst case scenario, is losing your flyer. So what I took the line of protecting my flyer, playing out the next couple of turns as if my opponent did have it, and if they didn't have it, it turns out they just blocked with the flyer to kill it, and then I put them dead in two turns, but I still had that eviscerate in my back pocket. I still don't think my opponent should have blocked there. I think they probably should have chumped and bought themselves a turn to decide because that 1-1 one, one wasn't doing anything. Um, and then it would have given them an extra card to find a piece of removal or to potentially find that Bane Slayer Angel. But it was a very interesting scenario in which we had enough information about our opponent's deck, specifically the Bane Slayer Angel, because that doesn't nothing else matters in that match, right? Absolutely nothing else matters. Um, and, and it was interesting to decide whether or not to fire off that removal spell to try to get them for lethal. God, the more I think about it, maybe I do want to go for it. Like when you say Mm -hmm. 5% chance, I'm like, just fire it off. You drew a land, you knucklehead. You Mm didn't, we're top decking. You, you drew a land. Like the, the longer I wait, the more opportunity I give them to draw something to turn the game around. I I don't feel like there's necessarily wrong answers there. There's just decisions. There's decisions to make, and you have to be comfortable with those decisions. And I think that's the key thing when it comes to firing off your removal is accepting the risk that you're not using your removal in the optimal position. Yeah. Um, and, if, and if you're okay with that, then you take that risk. And in this case, I wasn't. I wasn't okay with that. Um, you know, it's very... I thought it was a very reasonable chance that they had a removal spell, um, and I thought it was a reasonable enough chance that I wasn't willing to gamble my basically my only win con at that point because I was in top deck mode. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting scenario. Yeah. Like, I, I, there's the arguments of like play to win, not play to not lose. Like, when we're yeah. in a top decking scenario, I know a lot of players will hold a land in hand to kind of bluff that they have something. Like, imagine mm-hmm. play that turn back and they don't have a card in hand. You're if snap- tapped out. I snap attack it off any time and give them a, a empty board. Yeah, right. Like a hundred percent, hundred percent of the time if they're tapped out. Yeah. So it, it's amazing that all of those little variables can change it so drastically. So just be aware of all of those questions. Yeah. Think through these things and, and come to the decisions that you're comfortable with. I have made plays in a scenario like that where I, I killed the flyer and they drew and played the Bane Slayer Angel. Right. But I've also made plays in that scenario where I tag the jump block and basically can't get out of it. So it's a matter of what level of risk are you comfortable with. And I, I think you did a good job there evaluating what cards can I lose to because you're at an overwhelming board position, right? Like you've you've got two creatures that are going to trade and one that's just better than your opponents. So in, instead of thinking like, how do I win, slam the door shut? You're thinking, what could my opponent draw to beat me? And you know one of those cards is the Mythic Boogeyman, right? Exactly. So like you're deciding, I'm not going to lose to that. Let's see what you got. Exactly. Because so. if, if they chump the other guy, they're not going to swing back at you with the flyer, so you don't have to worry about that closing the game out. Yeah, I, exactly. I, I like your play. I like your play a lot. But I, the funny thing is, is, is I like a lot of different plays in that scenario, too. Um, so it's interesting. I don't think there is a 100% correct answer. There's just what turned out to be the correct answer in the long run. So, um, yeah, it's a cool thing. And it, it's, again, you're not, not trying to be results-oriented, obviously. You're trying to evaluate all of the outcomes. And you know, you're playing a Monte Carlo simulation of every different potential outcome and evaluating what's best in, in retrospect at the time I was just like, uh, you know what? I think they have it. So I'm going to take a lower risk play. And that's what I ended up doing. So it's cool. Yeah, I dig it. All right. 
well, we're going to wrap it up there because we went super long, but I think it was a really good discussion and I'm glad we got to have it. So I uh, hope you enjoyed listening. Thanks to Face-to-Face Games and Mana Deprived for the host and the support. And where can they catch you drafting Arena this week? You can find me at twitch.tv slash simulan. Uh, Like I said, we'll probably do some Dominaria drafts on Magic Online and then some Rivals drafts on Arena. You can also find me on Twitter under the same handle. It's at simulan. And I'm a D-Civilian on both. That's D-S-A-V-I-L-L-I-A-N. The summer is busy for me, so I'm going to be streaming a little bit less, but... uh, I've enjoyed seeing all the people that come out and and mention the podcast and got quite a few followers just from people listening to the podcast. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again. And uh, we'll see you online sometime. Adios.